peace be with you. You know, as in the tradition that I grew up in, we always had a kind of animosity against anything that was not deemed spontaneous. So the most we would do liturgically would say, amen, amen, right? And uh, one of the things that's been a joy for our community is to discover that some of these ancient phrases, like peace be with you and also with you, is ancient. It's from ancient liturgies. Uh, this one in particular, peace be with you and also with you, listen to where this comes from. Uh, this is in John 20. This is right after Jesus had raised from the dead. It says, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus first came after the resurrection. It's talking about. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, come on, guys, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the nails where and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. I think he was just being a pragmatist saying, come on, we got to move on. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came through. <laughs> I love that we get to believe this stuff. <laughs> and Jesus comes through, stands among them, and watch what he says. Peace be with you. This is an ancient liturgy. Peace be with you. So much of what we do in the context of our community when we do these resuscitations, it's not that we want to eliminate spontaneity. It's that some of these things are very, very deeply rich. And as you participate with them, you can enter with your heart and know that you're entering into words and phrases and, and a kind of rhythm that has been around not only in the whole church, but even way deep into the Jewish faith from which the church comes out of. So these are wonderful ancient things that we get to be a part of that you're saying that connect us with the communion of saints. So let me say it again. Peace be with you. Okay, three times in our gospel text today, we're told that someone is pointing to Jesus and talking about him while he's there, saying, behold, the Lamb of God, or in another place it says, this is the one who's the Messiah. The point is that people are supposed to be part of how God makes himself known in the world. That um, there's a text in Acts that says, I will give you as a light to the nations. I will give you as a light to the nations. And um, my salvation may reach to the end of the world. We're in the season called Epiphany. And Epiphany is just basically an aha moment where you go, oh, I didn't see that. Now I see it. It can be in something as natural and simple as watching a movie that has all these complicated plot lines. And then somewhere in the middle or the end or the end of the movie, it all comes together. And you go, oh, you have an aha moment. That is Epiphany. And in some very real way, the church celebrates this idea that this is the kind of thing God does, that God loves to give people aha moments where they go, that's what's really going on. And what this celebration is about in Epiphany is not just how God does it, but how he invites us to participate in that trajectory, in that impulse of making God known to the world. Now, there's a, there's a couple of provocative things that, you, that, are, that are basically implied by the very fact that God has to make himself known. One is that the creator loves to hide, right? This is a great text you might want to jot down. It's out of Isaiah 45 and 15. It's one of my favorites. It says, truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. The whole motif that keeps repeating over and over again through sacred text is that we're to seek the Lord. 
And the reason that that's present in the text over and over again is precisely because it's based on the premise that he loves to hide. <laughs> he, he's kind of the originator of the hide-and-seek game we played as kids, right? There's a text in Isaiah 29 that says, You will seek me, and you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart, and I've rigged the game, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, if you dare to seek. So first of all, it, it's this notion that God is tucked away in the lives of people that you love. Your life, your spouse's life, he's tucked away in your marriage, in your singleness. He's tucked away in your career, in the classes you attend, in the friendships that you have, in the world in which we live. And he's tucked away there, and he's longing for us to dare to seek him. Um, the second thing I think that, that we see in this notion of God wanting to make himself known is I think that we as individuals and as a body of people, the church, not just the specific church, but all the church, we, we need to bear part of the responsibility to make him known. In our gospel text, people are pointing to him while he's there. They're calling him out and saying, look. Behold, we have to bear that. We have to, before our world, understand that we're partially responsible, not all totally responsible, because God makes himself known in other ways. He makes himself known through creation. He makes himself known through the prophets. Um, but his people, you and me, we are part of the revelation program. And we bear some responsibility, right? So when I say that, what comes to your mind? I'm responsible to make God known to the people that live around me, to the people I work around. What comes to your mind? Well, in my tradition, I used to think I've got to get a bullhorn. And I've got to be, have these awkward confrontational conversations over and over again because I've got to push myself into their lives and make sure they understand what I believe about Jesus, right? And what they should believe about Jesus. Now, I think that there are times... And I think that there are certain kinds of people who can pull that off pretty consistently. They have certain gifts that when, they, when you talk to them, they just open up to you. It's, a, it's, it's amazing to me. I have a friend who I would walk with down the street. And he, as we were walking, he's the coolest guy. And he just had some kind of gifting or vibe or whatever the heck it was about him. We were walking by somebody. I mean, I'm walking with him, walking by and complete strangers. And he'd look at them. He'd say, hey, have you heard the good news? They go, no, What? And he say, Jesus loves you. And they go, oh, thanks. You know, you know, kind of, that kind of thing. So I'm watching him thinking, I can do that. I can. So I'm walking down the street. I say, hey, have you heard the good news? No. <laughs> Jesus loves you. <sighs> and it's like I'm a creeper. And I think, well, what's wrong with me? I don't have that whatever. See, so none of us all have that whatever, Right? I think for most of us, <laughs> except for rare times, we're not big preacher Jesus people. And I don't think we're supposed to be. I think, I think sometimes the Holy Spirit can lead us into special things. I remember one time I was in, uh, this was back in the 80s, and I was going to speak at a men's retreat, maybe early 90s, going to speak at a men's retreat. I had about an hour to waste, and so I went to the mall um, and uh, hanging around the mall. It was back in the day when they used to have those accessory stores. You know, they were stores that had like plaques and books about, you know, 
you know, about the idea of thinking positively, working well, you know, that kind of, and they were pretty good, you know, so I'm in this shop looking at some of these books, and uh, as I was doing that, all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see the girl turn, and I felt this heaviness. Now, I'm as selfish as the next guy. I don't really pay attention much to what's going on around me, plus I'm a guy. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and I'm in my own little box, right? And, but all of a sudden, this caught my attention. I looked over, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, she's in trouble. I'm thinking, okay. So what do I do? I think I just got to be honest with her, right? So I walked over to where she was. She was turned away to the wall, not looking at me, and there was no one else in the shop. And I came up to her, I said, miss? And she kind of reluctantly turned, and I could see she was crying. And I said, this is going to sound a little crazy, but I'm over there, uh, and I... I I felt like the Holy Spirit, I'm a Christian, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me that you're in some trouble and that you could use prayer. Man, in that second, that girl started crying like wailing crying, uncontrollably crying, slinging snot crying, (laughs) crying so hard. You know how kids do when they get, (laughs) you know, they get that kind of, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, that's where she was like right now. And she couldn't talk to me. I say, what's going on? <laughs> You're like that. And I'm going, okay, let, let, me, let me just pray for you. Can I pray for you? She, yeah. So, so I, I grabbed her hand and I said, I said, Father, I said, I'm just minding my own business, but, but somehow you see this girl's life and you know what's going on. I just pray that you will just move in and help her see that you see her heart and that you really have a path out and that she can begin to find steps that will lead her into better spaces and better places. Kind of prayed that kind of prayer. After I was finished, I looked at her and I said, do you know anybody who's a person of faith that can talk with you? <laughs> Shakes her head, yes. So I said, okay. I said, just know God loves you. And I'm starting to walk out the door of the successory place. And as I'm walking, I just felt the presence of God. And I felt like he said this to me. What if that was the most important thing you ever did? Now, my immediate reaction wasn't yay. My immediate reaction was, well, what about my preaching? And I write books and, you know, this was anybody could have done this, right? And I felt like the Holy Spirit said that for most of us, we put things in motion we have no idea because God does not share his glory. And you have no idea what a smile does, what a care does, what a pause does, what a listen does, that God uses to reveal himself to people in your world. And that all we're supposed to do is be willing to know we're part of the story. I'm convinced that much of what we used to call evangelism, where we have to confront people and tell them the truth and bring out the laws and basically try to convince them that so much of that kind of an attempt has hurt the cause of Christ more than helped it. I think most of us are designed to live in a kind of way that creates a question, which was the thesis of the message last week, where I gave you the text from 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts... Set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, let what you believe not just be in your mouth, but let what you believe actually change how you live. It's not on your lips only, but in your heart. And as a result, watch what happens. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks because when you live and make Christ as Lord in your heart, you begin to give in ways that are unusual and forgive in places that most people won't or engage in ways that are caring when others would run with people that are different than you, not just the same as you. 
And yet you show respect and honor for the other who's most other to you. It captures people's attention. And they're going to ask you, why are you like this? But he says, even when they ask you, make sure you respond to them with gentleness and respect. There's something about the tone of our lives that matters more than the words in our mouths. When Gail and I lived in Wisconsin in this small town, Marshfield, Wisconsin, there was about 18,000 people during the 80s and 90s. You know, we were pastoring a church. We wanted to reach the whole town, 18,000 people, pretty doable. We're thinking we can get her done in about six months. So we're out on the streets with our people. You know, we have just a few people. We're out on the streets preaching to people, passing out tracts. We're going door to door, knocking on doors. And uh, with almost no results, nobody seemed to be open to us and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no one seemed to care. And I remember thinking, just these people are just not open to the gospel, right? About two years after being there, maybe three years after being there, I heard about this revival that was going on among the Catholics, very Catholic Lutheran town, Presbyterian town. And so here's a town of 18,000 people. There's this Roman Catholic priest who comes into town who's doing a healing revival. And it was a chatter. I'd hear it in the restaurants. People were chattering about it. So I need to go out and see this. I go to the high school they were having in the big arena. There's 5,000 Roman Catholics out there. And this priest, he's got his whole garb on, the beads, you know, the rosary thing that he's got. And as he's preaching, he's preaching like a Pentecostal preacher and intermittently in his preaching is speaking in tongues. I think they thought he was talking in Latin or something. You know, he'd go off into tongues, then he'd start preaching. And, and then as he got to the end of the message, he had all those five thousand Catholics stand to their feet, lift up their hands and say, we renounce Satan and we declare Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. I mean, they're just shouting. And I'm looking around thinking, holy cow, <laughs> right? And then they started praying for the sick and there was miracles that were happening. And all of a sudden it hit me. These people aren't against the gospel. They're against me. <laughs> They don't understand me. I come across religiously in ways they can't comprehend. And they think we're odd. They're not against Jesus. And I remember going back to our people and I say, guys, you know, we got to chill out here. We're not going to affect people by thinking we're better than them and constructing faith and language that only we understand. So let's, let's, start, let's start just not judging people. And that when we run into a Catholic or we run into a Lutheran, instead of thinking, I'm right and you're wrong, or are you saved or truly saved? That we think, I wonder what God's doing in your life. And listen to them and engage with them. Have conversations like, okay, so how are you doing? Oh, you're Roman Catholic. Awesome. Do you go to church? Yeah. How are you doing? Are you growing? What's happening in your life? Or I remember having lots of conversations where I would ask somebody, you know, where are you at? And they kind of look at me quizzically. I said, well, you know, when you go to mass and you go up forward and you receive the elements, the body and blood of Christ. I mean, do you ever stop and think, I'm receiving Jesus? I said, not really. I said, you should do that. Just next time you go to communion, just open your heart and say, Jesus, come into my life. You're coming. You know, this sacrament means your presence. Come into my life in a new way, in a fresh way. And would hear stories of people saying, oh, they come alive. They were, they were experiencing Christ in new levels through their context. So we started nudging people to do that. Stop judging people. We started telling them to live well. To, to, to not focus on trying to talk 
people into stuff, but just simply to live well, to love people well, irrespective of their race, irrespective of their looks, irrespective of their social or financial status or political persuasion. Irrespective of that, just simply to set value on them and worth on them because of God, right? And I used to do simple things like this. I'd take a piece of paper or something and say, you know, how much, what is this worth? How much, how many of you would not give me $10,000 for this piece of paper? How many would not give me $10,000? How many will never raise your hand no matter what anybody asks you to do? Okay, thank you. And why wouldn't you give $10,000 for this? It's not worth it. So here's the question. Think of the person that makes you crazy the most at work. Ideologically, philosophically, politically. The person that drives you nuts. What are they worth to God? They're worth Jesus. Then the follow-up question is, what are they worth to you? And if we would dare to walk in our lives putting the face of Christ on people and thinking they're worth God, they're worth Jesus to God and putting value on them and preciousness on them. Not only that, but learning to work well, not for money. We're thankful for the money we get, but we're not working for money. We're not working commensurate with what we're paid. We're working as unto the Lord sacramentally as though God were our, Jesus were our boss. And we do it as unto the, from our heart as unto the Lord. I'm telling you, Christians could clean up in our country. Do you know how many bosses or organizers or managers, the hardest thing they say in their work is finding someone that actually works, that actually is trustworthy, that actually is persistent. We should be cleaning it up because we're not working for money or part of the group. We're working for God. We should be doing this with all of our hearts. That and, and creating the question we should be staying in love if we're married and celebrating our families in ways that people go, what's up? How is that different? Why are you different? See, when we started teaching people this within this little town, the largest evangelical church was about 100 people. Our church started growing, about 700 plus. And when you talk to people and I'd ask them, you know, why are you here? They wouldn't say, I wish they would say, oh, because we're such a great preacher. <laughs> but they didn't. <laughs> they would say things like, well, you know, we know so-and-so. And, and this happened, right? One particular gal, when I talked to her, she was a nurse, worked at the hospital. And she said, well, I know um, so-and-so, Kathy. And, and I said, okay. And I said, what's the story? And she says, I said, how'd they get you in church? She said, well, Kathy just works so diligently and has such a great attitude. And she always volunteers to be under this head nurse that everyone can't stand. I said, what do you mean? Well, she just is always, I mean, everybody avoids her because they change every month. They would change out in that particular context, the teams, and nobody ever wanted to work with this nurse. But every time, uh, Kathy would sign up. And she said, I honestly thought that you were best friends. She said, no, no, we're not friends. She said, well, why do you do it? She said, you know, people that are hurting and angry, they just need someone next to them to just fill in the gaps of love and kindness. She goes, why would you do that? She said, well, it's part of my faith, my trust. It's how I express my faith in God. Where do you go to church? <laughs> anyway, so this lady ends up in church because she wanted to learn how to live in a way that mattered. This is evangelism. This is doable. 
If you live well, you'll eventually create a question in the minds of those in your sphere of influence. And when questions are raised, don't use evangelistic speak. Somebody asks you, why are you like it? Don't say, well, you know, it's I love Jesus. As though he's your best friend, like he visits you at night or something. You're just going to sound like a creep. He speaks to me. He holds me close. He speaks to me in my life. See, that's great in evangelical charismatic circles. But when you're talking to somebody who's kind of outside that, they're thinking, I think you're insane. <laughs> what you should just tell them is you should just use language they understand. Tell them, you know, I'm pretty religious. Well, I would never say that because I'm not religious. I have relationship. <laughs> Shut up. I mean, be quiet, Janice. I'm sorry. <laughs> she doesn't like it when I use that word. Shut up. So I say, shut up, idiot. <laughs> People don't get that. I mean, we get it. <laughs> but you just need to look at, I'm religious. I read the Bible. I actually pray for you if you do. You know, pray for the person. Tell them. And, and then say, and they may say, well, why? So I just give thanks for you, man. I, I work with you. I give thanks for you. And um, if you ever need anything you want to pray, I'm a praying kind of person. That's what I do. Let me know. People can relate to that. They can understand religious people, that you do different stuff. And, and, and just lead into and be honest with people about who you are. And you'll find out people will be open to you. Now, here's another important thing to realize. If you want to make God known into the world, that seeing God and understanding the gospel it requires some supernatural activity. For someone to really see God, it requires a miracle of faith that you can't concoct with human persuasion or by being a fast talker. You can't make it happen. Uh, John 6, Jesus says it this way, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and then I'll raise them up in the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Not by people talking. By God as people talk. As people live. They have to be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. Theologians refer to this as prevenient grace. And what it means is, is that you cannot, you will never even think of seeking God unless God put the seek in you first. You never see unless God put the C in you. It's this notion of, you know, most of you don't answer the door unless someone knocks. And the minute they, something in you, seeks. People in your life, your children, your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, don't be mad at them if they don't seem to respond to the gospel with you recognize that they have still yet to be touched by God and the miracle of seek has got to come. Paul gives us a clue on how this works. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, since the wisdom of God, since in the wisdom of God, the world in its wisdom does not know God. You can't know God by just common wisdom. God was pleased. He loves to hide. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was proclaimed or preached to save people who believe. Jews demand a miraculous sign. Greeks look for wisdom. But we, we talk about Christ crucified. This message is a stumbling block to Jewish people. And it seems stupid to Gentiles. Foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called. Everybody say, God has called. 
to those whom God has called, whether it's Jews or Greeks, who used to think the message was foolishness and a stumbling block. But this, the people that are called, all of a sudden the message becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, what he's saying is there are times when the same message is preached where some people have different responses. There are different results. To some, it's a stumbling block and foolishness. To the called, it's the power of God. We want our kids to be called. We want our friends to be called. We want our relatives to be the called. We want our neighbors to be the called. We want our coworkers to be the called. Here's the million dollar question. Can we move or help to move a person from thinking of the message about God, from, being, from thinking it's foolish to thinking it's the power and the wisdom of God? Is there any way that we can play a role in order for them to switch their hearing? So that all of a sudden, instead of it being foolish, it's like, oh my gosh, that's the hope. That's the power of a new future. Can we do something? The answer to that is, I think so. I think there really is. And I think it's caught in what Paul says in Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He's praying that they'll be called. He's praying that somehow God will start snagging their hearts Start making the message of our lives be more curious to them so that they'll open up to what our lives stand for and what the words in our mouths indicate. This, it, it, what I think praying for people does is it makes the difference between them thinking we are idiots or heroes. <laughs> I think that, that this would mean that we can change the world family by living well praying well that we can actually matter in the lives of people for eternity. Now I'm going to have a Pentecostal moment right now. Woo! <laughs> I love that. I was so open to the gospel when I was a kid, 14 years of age. Nobody even talked with me directly about it. I was standing in a conversation, a sidebar of a conversation, and the guy said, I'm thinking about Jesus. And that just pierced me. And I went home that night, I was 14 years of age, and I was hanging around with some people that weren't exactly wonderful for me. And I was under the influence of some things I probably shouldn't be under the influence of. And uh, it was pretty good stuff. I'm going up the stairs, I'm going into my room, and as I walk into the room, I keep thinking, thinking about Jesus, thinking about Jesus. And I got next to my bed in my room. And as I knelt down, I didn't know quite what to do, and I started saying, Joseph, Mary, I was about Catholic, <laughs> Jesus, St. Michael. You know, anybody I can think of that might know somebody. And in that moment, it was like the heavens opened in some way and something just opened my heart and I sensed a transformation in my soul, right? This, I, I just, and I couldn't figure out when I, when I started telling people about it why everybody didn't want to respond like that, just like that. I think, how could you not be open to this? We're talking about almighty God here. We're talking about him touching your life. You know, I couldn't figure it out. It just, and I just thought, well, maybe I'm just really open to God, right? About 20 years later, at least, I ran into this lady who was going to our church in Wisconsin. Her name was Sister Schlinsog. 
And an uh, older lady at the time, she, in fact, it was just before she died, she said, Pastor Ed, can I tell you a story? I said, sure. And she said, when you were just a little boy, she said, I think you were about six. She said, I went to your dad. My dad was a physician, and, and he was her physician. I went to see your dad, and as I'm sitting down in the office to talk with him about my stuff, my condition, my health, she said, I looked down and I saw your picture on his desk, and I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, pray for that boy. She said, I've been praying for you faithfully for all these years, every day, ever since. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, that's why you were so open to the gospel. wasn't because I was just so open to the gospel because I'm such a wonderful person. I'm just as corrupt as you. But prayer does something for people. That's why since I, I try to, you know, if you're a people watcher, you should start doing arrow prayers at people like in the mall or in the airport or on the streets because you know what? Yes, I hear that in my spirit. <laughs> I think it's saying, it's time to be done. It's time to be done. Well, just a moment. <laughs> Do you know that some people have never been prayed for? They've never been prayed for. And so when you see people, it's like, I'll, I'll pray. I'll say, God, like little arrows. I'll say, God, I pray for that girl. Touch her life. God, I pray for that guy. I pray whatever's going on in his life. Speak to him. Bring some people into his world that love you. God, I pray for that kid. Arrow prayers. And then not only that, when you're praying things like the Lord's Prayer and you're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, pause and say, God, do that in me. Do that in my friends, my spouse. Do that in my family. Do that in the community that we're part of. Do that in our nation that we're in. Pray. Why? We want them all to be called. And then the last thing I want to tell you before I let you go is one of the most effective ways we make God known into the world is by faithfully Loving each other in the church. Not just this church proper. This church proper, yes, but then the churches that are around the, our city and the world. That, that somehow that we recognize that bringing the gospel to the world is not just a me task. It's an us task. And Jesus says this. He says in John 13, a new command I give you, love each other. As I have loved you, jump in. Love one another. Even the people you think are weird, like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, they would have killed each other politically, and yet they're around the same campfire loving each other differently. Or they're different from each other, yet they love each other. By this, he says, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. The world will know because of this. That in John 17, the famous prayer, my prayer, he says to the Father, is not for them alone, my disciples, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, like the people of Sanctuary Church this morning. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Think of that unity. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's something very miraculous about people moving toward each other that are different from each other because of our faith. He goes on, I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one. You're very glorious to help us be one. I and them, you and me, may they be brought into complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The question we have to ask ourselves in this is simple. 
do we believe this? Because this ain't easy. Us is hard in a me world. Being in unity is not suggesting we're all believing the same, that we're all acting the same, that we're all worshiping the same or in the same building. Unity isn't about just being one kind of people where we're all conservative or all progressive or all rich or all poor or all of one race. Unity is about all peoples walking together, working together, praying together, respecting each other, united like family. I don't know about your family, but my family, it's granola, man. Grapes, nuts, fruits. I mean, just the whole deal. When we come together and we're together, and it's a tenuous situation. But we come together because we're family. And if someone would look, they'd scratch their head and say, why are those people together? Oh, they're family. We ought to make people scratch their heads and go, wait a, wait a minute here. I mean, you voted for Hillary? And you voted for Trump? And you're worshiping together? Why? Or, hold on, you went to the women's march yesterday? And you thought it was unnecessary or disrespectful and you're both coming to the table today? In unity and love, holding each other's hearts? Yeah. Why? That's just Jesus Christ and we're religious. We hold on to him. And somehow, who we are together is more important than what delineates us from each other in our ideologies and ideas and political agendas. See, us refuses division. Us, you see, it takes great power to resist division because it's so easy to break off into groups and to think that our group is right over against other groups. Paul makes the statement in 1 Corinthians 3, brothers, I would love to address you as spiritual people, but you're not. You're, you're worldly, mere infants in Christ. One version says you're carnal, which means you're kind of meatheads. Uh, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. You're still worldly. Why? Why? For since there is jealousy quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere people, mere men who don't have faith? One of you is saying, I follow this guy. Another of you is saying, I follow this guy. Aren't you like, don't you get it that Christ brings us into one irrespective of our ideologies? Now, don't misunderstand me. We don't have to all agree. In fact, I kind of like it that we don't. I love it that there's some of us have different political bends that we can actually get it with coffee and argue with each other and talk about it and listen to each other and disagree with each other and then come to Eucharist. Something very, very powerful about that. Division is something that we have to fight against. Okay, so think of all the ways we differ from each other culturally, all the ways we differ, differ from each other in religious experience, all the ways we differ from each other politically, but we make Christ known when we dare to stand in solidarity with diversity. I love that. So Lent is coming. Lent is that time of year. It's that most horrible time of the year when you give up chocolate and maybe some coffee and it all sucks because you're making room in your heart for the Lord. I'm coming out with a new album. We're taking pre-orders on the website. <laughs> 
But you know what we want to do is we want to gather into groups. And during the course of Lent, we're going to have house groups, and we need some help with that. And what we want to do is come together. We're recalibrating them a little bit. Let's get meals together, talk a little bit about our faith journey together. Um, and then we're going to pray for each other and just read a couple of thoughts, and it'll be done. There won't be a lot of liturgy. It'll be a little low on that end. And, and what I'm hoping to do is hoping for us to get to know each other for this simple reason, that you discover just how different we are from each other. Because one of the things I love about sanctuary is we are a kaleidoscope of peoples. And I love that. And there's something about that that makes Jesus real in this room. Let me close with this. There's a, uh, an image I want you to see. This was on um, a recording that was done of the Coptic church in Egypt. And there they just had, this is right after they had about 14 or 15 of their church members murdered uh, in some riots against them because of their faith. And so they gather outside of the church and they together in solidarity begin to recite the Nicene Creed. And I think it's a moving moment. Now, when you look at it, you'll notice there's not women with them. And that isn't because they don't, you know, the church has always believed in women, but there are some cultures that public uh, presence of women in contexts like this would be offensive. It's one of the reasons I like living in the U.S. of A. Right? But it's still beautiful to see their uniting around not every political thing or everybody agreeing on everything, but the fact that they believe that God is God and at work in our midst. So I just wanted you to see this. Just I found it inspiring. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.